in this EG Property Podcast recorded live at our ESG Summit and in partnership with Derwent and Hollis. EG's Head of Content, Emily Wright, is joined by an expert panel of speakers to discuss generating additional renewable energy across the built environment. With increasing stakeholder demand for sustainable real estate and the need to improve resilience and meet net zero goals, this session investigates how real estate can look to amplify and intensify its deployment of renewable energy. So grab yourself a drink and listen in to find out about how additional renewable energy sources are key to addressing climate change and transitioning towards a viable energy future. Thank you very much to everybody for joining us for the afternoon sessions of our ESG Summit. Really looking forward to this next panel, generating additional renewable energy across the built environment. Um, And we have an absolutely stellar panel here for you today, again, all sitting in order, so I'm very impressed once again. Um, So please um, join me in welcoming John Davis, Head of Sustainability, Derwent London, Dr Tanya Groth, Director, Carbon Limiting Technologies, Anne Johnston, Head of ESG at Vital Energy, and Stuart Patient, Director of Hollis. Thank you very much for joining us today. So we are talking about um, additional renewable energy, and I know that we've been having discussions about this you know, before and, in, and in, in preparation for this. And it's incredibly interesting how it's not just talking about opportunities and challenges, but also some of the intricacies and nuances within that discussion that I think will be really interesting to, to sort of delve into in a bit more detail. Um, so can we start off just going down the panel, if that's all right, starting starting with you, John, because you're sitting closest to me. Sure. Um, what is, I mean, this is, this is a bit of a, um, an overarching question, but what is your hope for the, for the panel? Like, what do you want to get out of it? And what is the message that you're hoping you're going to be leaving everybody with here today without giving too many spoilers? <laughs> Crikey. What, what do I hope for the panel? Um, <laughs> hang on, guys. Wait for it. Um, no, I, I think very much the, the, one of the reasons for coming on the panel, and I think what I'd like to get out of, of this discussion today, and hopefully with the rest of you as well, is a bit more clarity about what renewables means in particular in built environment, in real estate in particular. Um, It's one of those uh, tenants or key tenants of of many a net zero carbon pathway or or sustainability ambition, but it's very, very tricky in reality to get there um, on a 100% basis uh, without having to think slightly laterally, particularly if you operate in city centres, dense city centres. It's not an always an, an always an easy thing to do. So certainly, I'd be really interested to hear what the rest of the panel have got to, got to say in terms of their experiences, which are probably going to be extremely vast on how other organisations have come at it, um, and you know what lessons that we in the real estate sector can take away and we can learn. Thank you very much, Tanya. Yes, uh, well, you touched on one of the key topics that I'm also quite keen to explore, which is around the urban elements. So um, I come from a very small island in Denmark, very rural island, in fact, um, and we transitioned to 100% renewable energy between 1997 and 2007, 70% of which was community energy financed. Um, Having since then moved around and being in London for the last 10 years, there's quite a a paradox between what can be achieved in some of the more rural and decentralized areas and what you can achieve in terms of renewable energy capacity in an urban city center uh, and how you plan that into uh, your built environment. So I'm hoping that's one of the topics that we get um, a lot of discussion about. Thank you very much. And Anne? Um, I think I would like to, I mean, we've actually already done a little bit of this, even in the past five minutes, (laughs) discovering some quite unexpected connections. 
Um, and I've noticed that over the course of the day. So I think what I would like to talk about is a bit more about the potential for partnerships and how we leverage that to make sure that we um, are drawing in all the different expertise that we need to solve these, you know, what can seem like fairly intractable problems. Um, and it's, you know, something that's quite interesting for me personally because I've only been at Vital for um, for four months. Um, and pr prior to joining as their head of ESG, I, I was in commercial real estate, so I've sort of crossed over from commercial real estate more into the energy sector. But clearly, they're not they're not different. They are essentially the same thing. And 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 you know, I hope this discussion just flushes out more of those um, aspects where we can all see things, where we can you know take away and work on them together. And Stuart. Uh, for me, it's about um, really collaboration and understanding we've got a shared goal really between people that own buildings, people that occupy buildings, all striving for a very similar outcome now, which I don't think previously we've had. So it's about the discussion really about the, the shared collaboration between both parties and also perhaps to debunk some of the myths with renewables and reasons that you can't do it and how we can perhaps negotiate some of those um, obstacles. Um, as people transition towards renewable technology? Well, I think when we were, when we were talking about this panel discussion, there were, there were those three areas that emerged that were quite strong in the opportunities, the challenges, and the intricacies. Um, I mean, in some ways, I, I almost want to come back to the opportunities because I feel like that is where there is the most knowledge around the opportunities. Um, and by all means, in your answers, feel free to highlight some of those. But I think that that really thorny issue of the challenges is so important. It's probably actually more what the audience might want to hear from the off. And I wonder whether that might be somewhere to start. And I know that we've talked a lot around um, issues in terms of... Like, the sorts of barriers that there are um, and why aren't more of the commercial market getting re getting renewables into the market, grid issues, that sort of thing. So maybe we could start off with some of the constraints that the market's facing, why there's such an issue, and hopefully through that sort of work through some solutions and the opportunities should follow, and then we'll go into some of the intricacies. So, John, because you're sitting closest to me, could we start <laughs> off with you, please, on that? On me. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, you know, whether it's constraints of scale, market mechanisms, whatever it might be, what, it, what would you say are the main issues and challenges at the moment? Um, I mean, obviously, all I can come at it from is, is our perspective, I suppose, as, the, as, 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 a, as a purchaser, I suppose, as opposed to a, a market... Uh, a market player, but I'll, I will come on to that in a minute because we, we are branching into that. But um, it, it's definitely when you're when you're there and you want to make you know you want to make a corporate statement that we want to purchase renewable energy and or in this case something like that, electricity and gas, and then you're presented with the various options on the table and the disparity between costs and the intricacies of provenance and authentication and then looking backwards then sort of you know, you hear from your stakeholders quite a lot about more on site, more on site. You know, planning regulation is very much you start on site. And then we have to work through the difficulties of trying to provide you know, things like PV. Unfortunately, we can't provide wind here in here in central London on, on our particular buildings. I don't know if anybody else managed to achieve that yet, but do let me know. Um, <clears throat> so we, it, it becomes very, very difficult very quickly as opposed to very easy very quickly. And I think that's the bit that I think we certainly struggled with in the early days is just how difficult that becomes mm. and so hence that's why it's one of the reasons why it's pushed us to move into the generation market um, ourselves um, on our Scottish estate by sort of effectively becoming a generator or our own generator ourselves so 
it kind of sort of helped helped us bridge that gap. And that's purely because of the coincidence that we had the land in Scotland. It's not too far away from, from where Anne lives and just down the road, down the road from where Stuart's, uh, Stuart's family live. Um, but that's a unique situation. So if you, if you park that just for a second and, and, and you sort of put it back into the pool of everybody else, it then becomes very difficult um, to access that without uh, then sort of very detailed research into, okay, how do I how do I sort of you know find a, find a generator, you know what's that relationship like? How do you navigate a PPA contract? All those sorts of things. It's it's not quite as straightforward as to just simply go right. I bought it. That's it. It's it's very very tricky and nuanced and and difficult and of course we have, we're accountable to our stakeholders to sort of say right this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it. we have to be transparent and and it's it's difficult because the market doesn't always give us that easy mm. ride into that transparency mm. thank you very much um tanya yeah I'm, I'm i'm there are so many different thoughts to unpick both in what you were just saying and then also in some of the sessions we've had Earlier, I did want to pick up on the biodiversity net gain session that, that uh, the fireside session that happened uh, just before the innovation session before lunch, um, because there was a discussion there about the 10% uh, biodiversity on top of um, on t on top of what was already in place before the prop uh, property was developed. And what it reminded me of, although it's not necessarily quite similar, is the old Merton rule or the Merton Plus rule. Um, which might be showing my age a bit, but that's some, um, from uh, a couple of decades ago. Uh, in terms of developments in uh, South London, you had to pr you had to prove that you would be generating at least 10% renewable energy on your site in order to get planning permission, um, and uh, that was mostly solar driven because uh, yeah, you don't see a lot of windmills in in, in London, bizarre bizarrely enough, <laughs> and. Um, I was I was I was just thinking, oh, wouldn't it be so so much simpler in many ways if that was if it was that easy? Because that almost seems like a way to simplify that discussion in terms of you put 10% solar um, on your site and that's just a rule and you have to justify why you don't do that. Or you have um, you have in planning regulations in many local authorities. GLA was one of the front runners in in instituting this, which is that hierarchy. Um, where you have to, for heating needs, for example, you have to justify why you are not putting in district heating as a starter for 10, and then you might drop down to individual heat, pu heat pumps, and you have to go all the way down the hierarchy if you want to be putting in individual gas boilers. Um, so I think planning can help simplify a lot of these things. I think that's the kind of key point, and I'm just going to keep rambling on. So before I do that, I'm <laughs> quiet and hand over to Anne. I think you're going to go to Anne next. I am. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to pick up on Tan's point about you, you, you mentioned district heat, which is one of the things that that we do. And obviously, grid capacity and grid constraints is a huge issue. And if you're waiting, you know, as you could be right now, if a DNO is turning around and saying it's 12 to 15 years before you get a grid connection then that's your net zero strategy out the window if you're relying on on-site renewables to get you there. Um, but for each individual, and, and you know, it kind of, all of these things that, that were mentioned in the first keynote this morning, you know, talking about how disparate things are at the moment and the fact that we need to, um, you know, have these kind of, you know, come together and, and start looking at how we scale things. And there are solutions out there that are already being deployed in, in the UK uh, very successfully. The UK actually has over 17,000 district heat networks at the moment, which you know I was quite surprised to learn um, when, I, when I heard that stat. Um, and, and some of them are, are hugely successful. I mean, we have a project in Leeds um, called Leeds Pipes, where there's 26 and a half kilometres of district heat network taking heat from 
um, low-grade steam from an energy from waste plant and distributing it across the, the, the whole city centre and up into the north of the city, and including um, buildings like St James's Hospital. Um, but if you're an individual building owner or you, know, you have your own portfolio, then you, know, you might be saying, but how do I influence that? How do I, you know, what do I need to do? How can District Heat help me when I, you know, I'm looking at you know, my own building footprint? Um, and, and that's where I you know, think there's a shift. And again, it's, you know, Tanya's totally right. It comes back to planning. It comes back to policy. Um, but we need to be thinking much more at scale and being much more ambitious. And again, you'll be familiar with this, but you know, cities like Copenhagen are almost entirely district heat network. There is absolutely no reason that we can't do it. Um, we just have to you know, stop thinking in our silos and actually want to do it. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to pick up on solar PV uh, side of renewables and some of the challenges that we see quite regularly are, as you touched upon, connection issues within the grid. Um, that's a big, a big issue. Um, we're hoping that's going to be resolved. Um, I was at a, a seminar a couple of weeks ago with Ofgem saying that the 10th, the 11th of November, they're supposed to be making a statement about changes to the DNO G99 process, which is the grid application process. So everyone's waiting with bated breath to see how um, we're going to get over some of the challenges. There's talk about um, national heat maps uh, software being launched, which at the moment lots of the separate DNOs have separate heat maps that you need to subscribe to, and there's no, no one pulling all that data together. So that would be really good to try and get that information quicker because a DNO process can take 13 to 16 weeks. Um, so it would be really, really good, like we've got in Holland, where we've got uh, a system that we can log in and see what the chances of getting a grid connection are within within minutes as opposed to waiting weeks and weeks. Um, moving grid capacity out, so some of, the, some of the projects that just aren't viable, that are clogging up the system, need to be pushed to one side. The, the system doesn't work at the moment. The G99 grid connection system was meant for um, lots and lots of singular, large, distributed um, energy, um, and now we're moving towards you know, everyone having potentially power stations on their roof, um, and that system just doesn't work. It's not fit for purpose anymore, so they need to be a big overhaul of the system. We're also seeing issues like structural issues with roofs. Um, are buildings going to be future-proof, so buildings that are being built now structurally, um, are they able to take the weight, the additional weight loadings and Actually, a lot of the older buildings are more fit for purpose because a lot of the newer buildings have been designed within an inch of their life to cut costs down. So we're finding actually structurally some of the newer buildings don't meet the grade as much as some of the older stock. So looking, working with architects to make sure that newer buildings are designed either with solar PV on or the addition to add solar PV on without any major structural reinforcement challenges. Um, and it also comes down to the availability of materials, the global, global supply issues of stock. It's actually been a bit better lately over the last six months. Wind the clock back a year ago, we were waiting 20 weeks for some of the equipment to come through. Um, and also the challenges with the labour market as well. So getting good quality, skilled labour into the sector. And how, I mean, how is the, how is the sector dealing with this sort of, I mean, it's, it's sort of layers of frustration really, you know, isn't there, that, it, that makes it it's difficult on a practical level, but it's also difficult on a progress level in terms of how it's making people feel about being able to actually move forward. And where there's a will but not a way, or a will but a very delayed way, um, that must be causing quite a lot of frustration within the market. So, um, Tanya, if you don't mind, I'm going to come to you on that just because you've, you were nodding along, and I, I'll take that as a sign that you've got an interesting insight to add. 
Well, I was just thinking in terms of that frustration level, so part of the, the background, well, it's a couple of things actually to raise then. One is uh, the company I work for, Carbon Limited Technologies, we support innovators in the market. So I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say to you all, we can't innovate ourselves out of the climate crisis. That's not going to happen. And that's partially because the innovators um, are facing the same challenges and constraints in terms of getting their products to market and embedded within a built environment and transport and other infrastructure as we all are facing just getting the normal uh, off-the-shelf uh, renewable energy capacity into the market. They're, they're facing the exact same constraints. So this isn't an issue that um, we can innovate ourselves out of. I know that's something that uh, some people feel um, uh, very strongly that there is uh, the potential for and the hope for. Uh, and certainly the innovations are amazing. But um, again, if we don't solve the, 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 all, all of these challenges, we aren't going to get them. We aren't going to get to see them embedded um, in, in our in our day-to-day uh, -day life. And the, the frustration element that keeps building up, and I'm trying to reflect part of that because we talk to them a lot about it. There's some great work happening, for example, Innovate UK pulling together cohorts across um, different sectors. So they're doing one around um, heat, where you're trying to really identify what the core challenges they're facing in terms of the standard assessment procedure and getting that to market, the um, energy performance certificates and getting uh, both existing technologies and new technologies to be fairly reflected in those so they can be embedded into our retrofit programs, so they can be embedded into our new built environment. So I was the one who was saying earlier that planning is really great because it can help simplify this process, but old, existing, outdated regulations and planning policies can also be a huge hindrance, so I'm just going to flip there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then in terms of um, that frustration that builds up, I was nodding along because I was remembering uh, some of the core frustration in the community energy environment, for example, around getting permission for hydro schemes. You know, it can take six years to get environmental, uh, it, just to get the environmental planning on a, on a smaller scale hydro scheme where there's very limited impact on, on the rivers itself, but would, would have a huge, Im, uh, huge beneficial impact in terms of delivering a renewable source of energy for a rural vi village, for example. Um, and certainly when we've, we've mentioned district heating networks and they can take a very long time to plan and to, to, to implement. Um, and I really want to say more, but I also feel like I should stop talking again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's very that's very good of you, feel feel fellow panelists. But it was very interesting what you were saying. I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to you soon with some with some additional points. But um, John, from a, from the sort of developer perspective, then we're talking about those frustrations. Um, is that something that you feel? And if so, how are you at Derwent, and how do you feel developers going forward? Are sort of pushing through that frustration, sort of keeping going, because that would be the worst thing, wouldn't it, to have all these hurdles in one's path and then think, oh, God, you know, well, there's nothing we can do right now. So how do you just keep it moving forward? Yeah, I suppose we, we, we feel it because we ask the question and we get told that you can't have it. So that, that's where the, the, the frustration comes in. Or we don't understand why. So you don't, we don't understand necessarily the, the, the application process or what clogs the system or, you know, you, you learn about supply chain issues as you go along because... Our day-to-day -day business is, is buildings and space. It isn't necessarily, um, you know, PVs and, and 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 grid connections. Although our net zero journey has prompted us to start learning more about it, ask more questions about the electricity and the gas that we buy, where it comes from, or where we thought it comes from, or where we thought it did come from, where it didn't <laughs> come from. Um, and I think we came. We certainly came to the the conclusion that. Um, with the assets that we had that we could certainly then branch into that. So we're beginning to learn all these things by putting in our own uh, schemes. So we've got one small scheme that's 
that's already delivered on one of our on one of our farm sites and our, our bigger site, which is uh, at our, our Lockfolds farm, which is a 100-acre, 18.4 megawatt site, which will be uh, being built out shortly, um, which will give us about 50% of our electrical needs um, here in London. Um, so that's our first foray into a project, and you know we were very lucky with position, grid positions, and all those sorts of things. Um, but one of the interesting things that we've, we're now coming across is the supply chain that's connected with PVs, um, and Again, the sort of the pitfalls that are wrapped inside of that. It's a very complicated supply chain and, and there's some elements of it that we, we're going to have to really sort of look at and try and work out, are we doing the right thing with this? Mm -hmm. um, and raising perhaps some awkward questions of the supply chain to sort of say, you know, how are we covering off these particular issues um, that, that, that pertain to the, to, 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 the, um, to the PVs? But the other flip side of that as well as what was driven by that was actually our, um, our occupiers. Um, many of our occupiers buy their electricity through our service charges. So they're not in control of, in many instances, the power that they buy. Um, so obviously they ask us, you know, is it, renewable, is, it, is it renewable electricity? And we can obviously evidence to a level that, yes, it is. It's on a renewable tariff or it's got a re-go backing to it, et cetera, et cetera. But we felt that we needed to go and do more. Um, so we're hopeful that this will enable them as well to have some kind of claim and some kind of stake in the provenance of the electricity that they're corporately buying as well. Um, and I think that led us to then sort of think, well, maybe that is where um, a lot of the real estate sector might end up having to go in order to secure renewable um, electricity or indeed energy, particularly here in London, where the infrastructure, you know, it, it's starting to creak, um, you know, and the conversations we tend to have these days with new schemes, because we want our schemes to be all electric, so we don't necessarily want fossil fuels doing the heating and the hot water for, for, for the site, is we're entering into sort of long and protracted conversations with UKPN about what's available. Where can we get this additional electricity for, for this particular site? Um, in many instances, we've had to travel miles in order to get a connection to bring up um, to bring the, the building online with mm. that level of electricity. So if we're but one organisation, we've got lots of organisations doing the same thing. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the, the, the sort of the capacity is going to get even more constrained. So there's going to be an issue there, um, yet alone whether it's renewable or not. And I think the interplay with planning is a really interesting one where they want to push quite rightly so, renewable energy through the planning system, but sometimes not necessarily realising where that limitation will start and where it will stop. Um, and the other thing to contend with is, is that maybe we, as real estate and asset owners, are going to have to play more of a part in the infrastructure and be part of the infrastructure in some way, shape or form, whether it's district heat networks or indeed electrical networks, so providing battery storage for not only our own buildings, but other buildings to be some kind of resilience um, tool. I don't know, but generally we sort of feel that that's where it's starting to head. So I think as real estate asset owners, I think we're going to have to start to play more, more of a part in the game as opposed to previously just simply being the recipient, the requester and the recipient of the, of the energy. Emily, can I come in on that? Yes, of course. Thank you very much. So actually following on both on your point and on, on Stuart's earlier point around the capacity constraint, is that the peak, are we talking about peak capacity here now? Because there is this whole flexibility element and responding to the different times of day and also district heating in particular and other heat technologies have a huge role to play in terms of thermal storage abilities in term, and their, uh, therefore their uh, ability to balance and, and provide flexibility to the electricity grid as do other technologies.
technologies, battery storage, electric vehicles, we all know they have a huge role to play in flexibility. So when we're talking about capacity constraints here, are we talking about peak demand capacity constraints or are we just talking about where we're ignoring the advantages of flexibility or are you, are you building in flexibility already and you're thinking in terms of um, accessing the grid? I think it depends on who you talk to. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, very, it's, very, it's very much, you know, um, if, you, if, you, if you talk to sort of the, U, the UKPN, the district network operators, it's all very much about what's, what is at capacity at the moment? Mm -hmm. What is the spoken for capacity? Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, this is sort of feedback we get from our development teams. You know, this is basically what UKPN is telling us we can and can't have. Um, versus a, a much more um, rounded conversation about, okay, well, what, what do you need and when? Um, and so, therefore, can we um, or can it be satisfied by some kind of give-and-take system, whatever that give-and-take system is? And I think the question that then flies back is, is that we're not, they always say, we're not quite there yet because we don't quite understand what everybody is doing. Yeah. And I think that the whole sort of smart grid, smart city sort of, thinking starts to come into shape but it gets really difficult to try and then sort of say right let's try and roll this out in a very short period of time because everybody wants to start particularly sort of network operators want to start from that first base whereas we sort of want to try and push it forward yeah. faster and quicker so than they're willing to do that point about so when we're talking about the grid i think it's you know it's, it's maybe just worth cla well, clarifying a bit what we mean by that because you know we, we talk about the grid as if it's a single entity but in the uk there are 14 um distribution network operators and 17 independent distribution network operators and actually you know and, and vital is an IDNO and we probably need more of those and we need to look at things like private wire connections and and as Tanya said we need to stop we need to kind of change how we think about the grid and where the capacity is and, and where it comes from and then that will make other solutions more cost effective or or more workable um, but if you're, but if you don't know, you know, obviously, if you're sitting there and you've got this this problem to solve, and you think, right, okay, I'm going to phone my electricity provider, <laughs> they're going to give you an answer, and if that's as far as you know to take it, then it it can it'll seem like, well, I, I don't I don't know where to go from here. And I I think you know what kind of real estate needs to to do get better at is is to realise that there are actually people out there that have been doing this for a long time, mainly in the public sector. And a lot of that experience is there and can be tapped into, um, and you know, and the, the, there are there are solutions there. So not to be too disheartened by it. Well, I didn't know there was that many people involved. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> and also things like multi-let industrial. Previously, you would have one meter. If you've had 20 units on an industrial estate, you might have uh, one amp. You'd have one amp per building, one supply point. Um, that's starting to change, so we're starting to see microgrids where we have one incomer coming in to supply mm -hmm. all of those 20 properties and then effectively being able to bounce that power around the building uh, on the estate and take out some of the peaks and troughs that we might have on certain buildings using a lot more or requiring more perhaps PV power than they've got on their rooftop space. Before then, that goes out to the grid, so that can help with levelising some of that demand and the peaks that might come with maybe a, one really large energy user that's got a really high process load and then perhaps the unit next door, which might be a, a large unit, but actually just ambient storage and just storing cardboard boxes. So actually their energy demand is quite low for the rooftop space that they have. Thank you very much. I mean, Anne, actually, I just wanted to come back um, to you as well. I mean, we're talking, you were talking about um, sort of a bit of clarification, which was really useful. Obviously, you know, what you guys do, Vital Energy, um, very much around um, solutions in this field. And I'm just interested to see from your perspective, where, how, what do you find yourself coming up against when you're dealing with, you know, the industry and where do you think the knowledge gaps 
are? I mean, I know that's quite a big question, but if you were gonna, <laughs> or, or, or where the, the will is, you know, I mean, interested to see the, both the positives and not the negatives, that, that sounds wrong, but the positives and where there needs mm -hmm. to be more information, more education. Um, I mean, for, for one thing, I think sort of more education around the sort of difference between um, electricity demand and heat because decarbonising heat is you know, an, an activity on its own, and they're obviously connected, but you know, depending on, on what it is you're actually trying to achieve, there, again, there'll be sort of different ways of, of, um, of coming at it. And um, you know, certainly since joining Vital, I've spent quite a lot of time um, going round my colleagues and saying, tell me what you do, and it's really fascinating what they all do, and also going out and seeing some of our projects. So you know, the, the Leeds project that I talked about um, I, I've been, um, we're doing some work in uh, West London, which I've been involved in. Um, I've been to see one of our new solar farms that we've built just outside Rochdale um, for Rochdale Borough Council. And I think that those projects have kind of come, they have come to fruition where people have been willing to talk about how to get to the reality and you know what or what is reality and what is deliverable from the idea that they maybe had in the first place and the the place where there's you know you can sometimes run into trouble is where there's a, a real desire to have something like so say you want a, a scheme that might be a district-wide scheme and you're like you know saying things that we absolutely want no gas well, obviously that's fine that's what everyone wants but by doing that there might be unintended consequences of that you take up all the capacity that prevents other neighbouring districts from from decarbonising as quickly, um, and having you know open and honest and transparent discussions about what you can and can't have at a certain time, and how you sequence things to make sure that you get the best out of a project, those are really um, important discussions to have. And another important discussion to have is to, is and this has been mentioned earlier on today as well is that that kind of difference between your capex budget and your opex. And making sure that when you're spending money on your capex, that you don't cut a corner because your budget's only this much that ends up costing you more in the long run, because you've made that system more expensive to to run. And a, you know, an example of that. And if we get any questions of this, I'm just going to pass them to my colleague <laughs> Elliot who's sitting in front there. But if you're operating a heat pump, they operate more efficiently at lower temperatures. So if you don't lower the temperature of your heating system, then your heat pump will be inefficient and it will cost you more to run. And you sort of think, how many people actually know that? I didn't know that. You know, I just thought a heat pump. Oh, yeah, great. That's like, you know, that's a, a zero, a low carbon or a, a zero carbon choice. But it's, you, you know, there, there are still nuances, which again, there are lots of people that have got the expertise to help with that. And um, you just have to uh, be able to get that knowledge out of them and that does require a bit of education about making sure that people know which questions to ask. I want to open up um, the um, to, from questions to the floor in a minute but there are a few things that we just wanted to touch on before then um, and one of those things sort of quickly was availability of contractors and this is something which has sort of come up in our previous discussions availability of contractors that really understand how all of this stuff works I know that that's an area that um, there's a bit of there needs to be a bit more focus on. So I don't know if anybody wants to sort of jump in on that and explain a bit in a bit more detail how important that is. Yeah, I, I can. So there's uh, a scheme called the Micro Generation Certification Scheme or MCS, and that sits 50 kilowatts and below. So that was very much developed for um, when the government introduced the feed-in tariff, uh, and it was domestically driven. 
over 50 kilowatts. Most commercial systems will be over 50 kilowatts. There is, there is no MCS standard. There's nothing to govern. So unfortunately, that's led to some pretty bad contractors in the market. There are good contractors, but there are a lot of bad contractors as well. So a lot of due diligence checking to make sure that um, those contractors are fit for purpose, you know, um, checking previous projects they've done, what sort of technology they install, whether they're certified to install the other types of technology from the, the OEMs. Um, but having the government um, drive a standard for commercial systems would really help to, um, to, to ensure that the people that operate in that field from a contractual basis are fit for purpose as well. Um, I've sort of linked in this week um, shots of someone's taken a drone shot of their roof. They're really pleased with PV contractors on the roof, no edge protection, no man safe system, working on an exposed edge roof. Um, and they were using a cherry pick to get up on the roof and drop them off. I mean, it's just a, from, a, from a contractual point of view of actually installing the work, it's a recipe for disaster because if someone falls off the edge of that roof, they're dead. Um, but from an ongoing maintenance perspective, um, you've got to think about well, how are you going to maintain this asset for the next 25 years? Solar is a long-term investment in your roof. And you don't want to be at a position, even if the PV contractors have installed edge protection, which they should do, um, once they've installed six, eight weeks later, you've got to think, well, how am I going to get onto that roof to clean the panels? What if a panel needs to be replaced? Um, and part of the, the RC62 regulations, which is uh, something the fire regulations that have been brought out about photovoltaics, talks about the ease of maintenance as well. So how, how can you get onto that roof to maintain it? And if that, if that answer is it's very, very hard, that's something that won't sit well with the insurance industry, and that's something that we talked about earlier in the sessions. What's the insurance? The insurance industry is getting pretty under the bonnet of what's going on with solar rooftops now. Um, so you need to check RC62, Aviva loss prevention standard document, because that details a lot of requirements that might only get found out at the end of the project when you, once you've installed, which becomes too late. Thank you very much. Um, and Tanya, you, you were saying you know, we're not going to be able to innovate our way out of the problem, which is an interesting point. And th there's, you know, I think there was a more of a discussion around, actually beyond that, a bit of fear and scepticism around technology. Um, in you know, I think there was a mention of you know, there being technologies that never switched on. Um, and you know, once that's happened, then the trust is effectively lost. So can you give me a bit more detail on that? And how do we mitigate, mitigate against, against that kind of thing happening? Because that, that feels like an easy one not to fall into the trap of, but... You say easy. I mean, the, we, we did discuss a couple of examples in the, in the, in, in the preamble to this. Um, one I would give now to the audience is I, I know of a system that been, that's been put into a social housing unit. Uh, it was a combined heat and power system to provide um, uh, heat and power to, to the, throughout the social housing unit, much more efficient than their existing uh, gas heat only boiler system. And that went all really well and done until one of the residents in a three, 400 uh, resident block said, absolutely not. I refuse to have that turned on. So there's one person, and because of um, <laughs> because of the way that social housing tenancy was set up, that meant they could never switch it on. So they'd installed it, they'd set it up, it worked. I wouldn't say that's the technology's fault. And I should say, when I said we couldn't innovate ourselves out of the problem, I was most I mainly mean that, A, we have all the technologies we need to fully decarbonize. I mean, if we just ignore the grid constraint issue and the supply chain issue, I mean, all the technologies exist. We could be fully decarbonized tomorrow. 
Um, there is there, and we could be fully decarbonize that and be paying less for energy than we currently are tomorrow with all of the existing technologies that are available. And then you've got all the great innovations that are coming on board, um, which can do even cheaper things going forward, even better things going forward. But in terms of, of um, <laughs> where those constraints lie, I would say it's very much about that social acceptance issue. And it's around the trust and the contractors. And we don't have, I think, enough fail safes built into um, built into our systems, our business practices, so if things go wrong. Because yes, if you have a contractor who does a shoddy job, you can sue them, they can go bankrupt, you can end up still having a very poorly performing property. We all know these stories in, in, the, in, in, in the built environment market. And that's both within the properties themselves and it's within the energy generation elements of the property. Um, can we do better in terms of that? I mean, that I think is going back to one of Stuart's earlier points about what kind of partnerships and collaborations can we build? Because we don't have to wait for government, by the way, to develop these things. Um, and we, because we keep talking about district heating, I'm going to go back to district heating. So district heating, for example, developed um, um, uh, the, the heat trust. Uh, so there isn't, there will be consumer protection for the district heating uh, consumers coming online. Ofgem has been appointed as a regulator for that. It doesn't exist yet. There's no existing customer protection for any customers on a heat network scheme. There's no ombudsman, nothing. So uh, the district heating industry, the ones who are providing district heating, in order to ensure that there was a base level of quality, developed themselves a standard and signed up to that standard, which is the heat trust. And it's a voluntary standard. But you will find most of the heat network operators have voluntarily signed up. And it provides customers with an ombudsman. It provides them with that safety net. So we don't have to wait for regulation and policy. And I would really strongly recommend that we don't always <laughs> rely on politicians to do all of the heavy lifting for us, because we're all smart people involved in the industry and we can collaborate and we can develop the partnerships necessary to provide ourselves, our colleagues, our families um, with, with, the, with the safety net that we need. Thank you very much. Right, I'm going to open up to questions from the floor. Are there any questions out there? We've got some on Slido. Yes, thank you very much. I don't know if someone's able to get a microphone just down here. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm Paul Bosworth at PwC, and my, my question's for you, John. There are a lot of um, companies and funds who've, you know, come to the kind of realization recently that um, rego-backed electricity, switching to renewable supplies, kind of doesn't really sort of cut it anymore when it comes to delivering on a, a credible net zero plan. And Doan have, have long, you know, you've long led the way uh, when it comes to this stuff. I'm just kind of interested to understand um, what the sort of story is from coming to that realization that Der went through to then getting sign off to from senior leadership to make that adjacent investment in the in the solar farm and what kind of advice you'd have to plenty of others who are, are looking to do exactly the same thing at the moment in the sector yeah sure I mean <clears throat> taking the first point about uh, rego backed contracts and the sort of the, the hierarchy, the quality hierarchy that uh, that you can that you can look at. Um, I would say, that, you know, like everybody, we sort of looked at it, and and even within the hierarchy, we struggled to work our way up the hierarchy because the, the higher we tried to go, the less and less that, that seemed to be available. So, what 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 happened was we ended up sort of sitting around the table saying, well, if we can't find you know a provider that will genuinely provide what, what it is that, that, that that's being needed 
can we not do it ourselves? Question mark. We, we, we put it onto our buildings, albeit on a very small scale, very, very small scale. Um, and so that's the question that prompted a whole series of, well, actually, hang on a second. Could, could we actually do it? Um, and then six, seven months of sort of scratching heads. Um, we looked at what we had available to us. So we've got some land in Scotland um, and it sort of spiraled from there. And then the more we sort of talked through it, the more and more sense that it made for us to go down that path. Um, is it a cheap endeavour? No, it's not a cheap endeavour. Um, but when we looked at the business case of creating our own um, uh, sort of energy generating business, it very much washed its face on one side of the equation. Um, as Derwent PLC, we'd be on the other side of the equation with a with a PPA agreement. Again, we're navigating these as well for the first time as to how these things work. Um, not as not as not as straightforward as we thought that, that, <laughs> that, that, that it was. Um, but we've got some great great support helping us through those trials and tribulations. And but I think the sort of the the, the leadership team um, sort of saw both the angles and saw. One, what it brought entrepreneurially to the business, which was okay. Well, we effectively we've got a we've got an income stream here. So if we didn't take it at one end, there's still an income stream that's going back out into the market. But we do want to take that and and utilise it. Uh, and then we'd be in with a fighting chance of providing an equivalency in terms of price to our occupiers for technically a higher grade product in inverted commas, albeit that once the electricity goes into the system, we can't track each individual bit down the down the wire. Uh, again, that was another interesting concept to try and explain to people about how it all worked um, and learning as we learning as we went along. But I think the sense and the logic always remained true. So we're, we're now at the point now where we have full planning permission. We're about to start the procurement process. Um, so we're, we're, we're well into it. Um, so hopefully in, in sort of a year or two's time, I can hopefully report back on how well we've done. We still continue to procure Rego backed tariffs until we've got something. Um, that will only furnish us with 50%. Um, and now we're also looking at gas as well about can we do the similar a similar move with gas and look at anaerobic digestion um, and potentially start to plug that, that gap as well. Because although we're talking ambitiously about sort of de-fossil de fueling everything, we will have a legacy that we have to deal with. We can't just shut certain buildings and certain things off gas at the moment. So we have to furnish that somehow. So we do have to address that as part of our part of our um, our circle, if you like. We are we are. I'm so sorry, John. We're we're, we are uh, we're over time. Oh, um, so, but <laughs> sorry. I, there's a few things. I'm sorry. No, not not because not just because of you. Because of the whole session, it's been very interesting and, and very in depth. But I do. I'm sorry, Tanya. You look to the ceiling, and I just have to ask what was just very briefly. What was that? What was that about? <laughs> well, that would be the, the third the third barrier to grid constraints in the supply chain. Well, we can't we have all the legacy assets, so we can't yeah. just shut everything, switch over to fully decarbonize tomorrow. Um, so that was the uh, look up. Yes, that third element is the there. Third as well. element. In theory, yes. <laughs> yeah. In theory, yes. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, so I just want to just go back down the panel, if that's okay, and just get a final thought from everybody. Um, you know, just. Where, where we're up to at the end of this, this discussion, there's so many, there's so much stuff that we haven't actually touched on. Um, if, if you know, I'm not saying you have to. If somebody in these final thoughts could maybe have a, a few learnings, and really, I'm looking at Tanya and Anne because you both mentioned it. A few learnings from, you know, Copenhagen or the small island that you were talking about. I know that it's different markets, entirely different setups. So, if there are any lessons to learn, to be briefly 
um, pulled, pulled into your final answer, that'd be great. So, um, John, starting with you, final, final comments. Um, just have a go, I think is probably what I would say. Um, and at the very least, start to move into buying renewable energy of some description. That's the first start, because I know some people haven't. And then don't worry too much, but still keep trying to push on and, um, and uh, have a go at cracking into the higher echelons. Thank yeah. you. Tanya. That's very similar. I was thinking, try everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, have a go, try everything. The uh, energy, energy island, we call it the energy island. The energy island I come from, um, we tried a bit of everything. Uh, anaerobic digestion is one of the things we didn't touch upon. When we talk about renewable energy, a lot of people immediately only think about solar PV and windmills, and that is just ignoring this massive scope. You said anaerobic digestion. I love anaerobic digestion. Yeah. Like, why in all of our London you know, flats and uh, commercial buildings do we not have household level building level anaerobic digestion facilities, recycling, getting heat and combined heat and power from our wastewater treatment and putting it back into the building. I don't understand. Technology exists. Why isn't that embedded <laughs> into the building code? Um, because that's the source of energy right there in the urban center. But yeah, I'll stop again. <laughs> um, I would say be ambitious. And for lessons learned, going a bit closer to home than than, um, than Denmark, but <laughs> Leeds that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, you can look Leeds Pipes. It has its own website. You can look it up. Um, and also um, our Queen's Key project in in Dumbartonshire, uh, which is a river source heat pump. Um, heat networks are agnostic about where the heat comes from, and this was mentioned earlier on today as well about waste heat and how we how we see it and you know the, even the fact that you're calling it waste heat it's a it's a resource that we should be using um, you know and, a, and I think we need to be you know be getting much more clever about how we capture it how we value it how we buy and sell it um, but you know councils like Leeds City Council and Western Bartonshire Council are definitely ones who've put their money where their mouth was and uh, now have something to show for it um, and that kind of comes to you know following on from John and Tanya's point about it, you have to try, you have to start. You can't just kind of keep sitting talking about it. Thank you very much. Stuart? Yeah, my comments are the same, really, is um, get started on projects. Just we, we hear quite often, oh, we want to do PV and we want to do battery storage, and battery storage market might not be there yet in the UK it's, uh, unless you start revenue st stacking batteries. But don't not put PV on the roof just because you're not putting the batteries on at the moment. Put the PV on as the first phase, make that make that fray into renewables and then look once you've got a year's worth of energy data then you can be really specific what, what size batteries do you need so treat them as phased projects um, and don't let all of the the myths surrounding grid connections and structure we've talked about there's there's lots and lots of positive roof projects out there and there's lots of ways to circumnavigate some of the roadblocks ahead of you a nice positive note to end on thank you very much can i ask you all in joining me to thank our brilliant panel Thank you, John, Tanya, Anne and Stuart for sharing your time and thoughts with DG. Thank you all for listening. For other podcasts recorded live at our ESG Summit or for any other news analysis or data, head to egi.co.uk slash news. Mm -hmm.